0: This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Okay, we're ready for, uh, we're trying out a new format here for question and answer rather than asking the speakers to step up and step back each time. You've got the line up here. And so we'll start with Brenahan. Somebody is asking Has reticulation and remingling of different groups resulted in accelerated evolution due to an increased diversity of genetic background?
1: It's a song, yes. Great, thank you for the question. Um, we, don't, we don't know. Uh, th- that's sort of a, something that we speculate about at the end of our paper is um, yes, if you, if you have two distinct groups, each experiencing their own genetic drift, you're gonna have uh, unique adaptations occur, you're gonna have uh, unique mutations in each, and so when they come together, you have this um, uh, process by which suddenly, greater diversity can facilitate additional adaptation. Um, This has been discussed a lot in the context of uh, Denisovans and Neanderthals. We don't yet know um, how this plays into human evolution in Africa.
0: Thank you. And I have another one for you. Uh, Could both of these models be fully accurate? Archaic introgression and various weakly differentiated Homo sapiens populations, both contributing to sub-Saharan African populations in this scenario.
1: I I mean, I suppose in theory they both could be accurate. But what we're doing is we're taking these different models and we're testing which uh, which of these models better fits the data. So. Basically, you can simulate an African archaic hominin intergressing into Western Africans, and the type of uh, genetic patterns which emerge, and then you can simulate a, a deeply structured stem. Um, and in our case, what we see is that the the better model fits are the ones with arca- with without archaic intergression. So even though you know we don't expect explore all potential models with this um, particular feature. And, and so therefore I cannot say that we can exclude it completely. I can say at the moment that the better fit model is the, the weakly structured STEM.
0: Thank you very much. I have a few questions for Carol, my co-chair. Is there a correlation between delayed neuronal maturation and neuropsychiatric disorders? How prone are non-human primates to neuropsychiatric disorders?
2: Um, that's, Great question. Um, I'll start from the from the, the last question. Uh, uh, testing psychiatric conditions in non-human primates is quite uh, uh, challenging, as you can imagine. Um, m- maybe a little b- also because they don't have uh, those uh, higher levels of language. Um, but um, so that's that's a, a, a gray box. Uh, very very hard question to answer. Um, with uh, with regards to uh, delayed maturation or changes in neuronal development timing and uh, neuropsychiatric conditions, uh, it has been uh, um, uh, shown uh, in the literature a number of times that um, you there there are uh, you can observe uh, in some of the neuropsychiatric conditions. Different uh, uh, levels of either delayed or accelerated, such so changes in that timing of maturation seem to be very, um, seem to be regulated very tightly, and when you have changes in, in that uh, uh, timing, that the, the brain can, will not develop uh, potentially not develop properly, and you, you could have uh, um, changes in, in um, neurological conditions. Uh, given
0: that. Thank you. I'm going to give you a, quite a few so you can help me sort through them afterwards. Um, so the next question is, how do the six- to eight-week-long experiments in culture compare to developmental milestones in human chimps, which are more often measured in years? Yes,
2: yeah, so that is another great question. Um, so when, when we look at uh, in vitro, so against in vivo system, very different from looking at neurons in vitro, but it's a model. Models are just representations of the reality. They are not the reality, but we, we get some insights of what happens uh, um, by looking at uh, in vitro models uh, in tissue, in cultures, cell cultures. Uh, when we look at neurons, about six to eight uh, weeks of differentiation, and we try, we compare uh, with. Uh, uh, living tissue to have an idea of how old those neurons are. They are about um, between second to third uh, um, trimester of uh, embryo development. So that those are the neurons that we are looking into. They are comparable to uh, uh, the, that developmental stage in, in uterus. Um, so uh, the, uh, the idea is that you can, at that stage, there will be already some changes in the brain, the development of the brain that could uh, uh, be responsible to or be, be part of the, the changes that you will see in developmental patterns later in development post-birth. Uh, uh,
0: Thank you. And then the next one is... Um What is the mechanism behind delayed uh, maturation that allow human brains to be capable of more? Why not fire more from the beginning? You want to be faster, better off the... the, the, I think that refers to human cells being slow in firing initially and then being much faster later. Why not being faster from the get-go? There
2: there are some... Great question. (laughs) Uh, Some uh, um, hypotheses of what that could be Happen is that uh, the, the the neurons need a, s- a specific time for proper wiring and proper pruning of the the, the connections that are not used, um, and that timing of fine tuning the connection uh, or the integration of the the neurons and the the to fine-tuning, that's that's needed in order to build uh, a better, uh, more efficient uh, machine uh, later. So there's some, uh, there is a lot of mathematical modeling also now, uh, and and uh, system neuroscience work going into trying to um, understand how you grow a network uh, in the best uh, possible way, in the more efficient way, and uh, uh, to get the best outcome. So that. The timing for proper uh, fine tuning seems to be important to to get at better uh, efficiencies later,
0: later. Thank you. That totally dovetails with the last question for you right now. And in your presentation, you mentioned how the absence of the Gata3 gene caused human neurons to exhibit faster neuronal growth, similar to those of other primates. Was there a significant difference between dendritic length and branching between human neurons with GATA-3 and human neurons without GATA-3?
2: Yeah, great question. Also on, 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 so one would uh, uh, hypothesize that uh, when you don't have GATA-3, you will also have that uh, um, Speed up. So you speed up functions, so you should also speed up neuronal maturation in human, in human neurons earlier on. Um, but we haven't looked at that yet, but that's a great follow-up question.
0: Thank you very much. The next question is for Mark Collard. Uh, do you personally think that early, two million years ago, homo-evidence for fire use represents usage of wildfire?
3: I mean, the the, the evidence that we've got back at 2 million is basically morphological, so it's based on the shape of the the body of Homo erectus. So it's an argument-based, it's an extrapolation or an inference based on um, morphology rather than actual archaeological evidence. Um, So, you know, if you talk to the archaeologists who specialize in... um, in fire research, many of them are very uncomfortable with that line of evidence. Um, you know, they they would tend to see you know one point five as being the absolute max at the moment in terms of of actual hard evidence for for fire. Um, so there's a sort of you know there's there's a pretty substantial gap in terms of of our our uh, lines of evidence there that that needs to be breached, but. Of course, the problem is that we can, I think, fairly easily imagine that um, you know the probability of of fire evidence surviving is 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 pretty low. So it's a bit of a conundrum that we mm. we face there. Right? We're, you know, we can be reasonably confident about the um, the sort of 1.5 ish date, but. Uh, We we can also be, I think, fairly confident that it's earlier than that. But whether we can um, infer or or reliably infer fire use or cooking specifically from the body form of Homo erectus, given some of the other things that could drive that body shape change, I I I think it's an open issue. So. Thanks very much. That that would be my equivocating answer. (laughs) So here we go to a
0: completely non-nutritional effect of fire. With regards to ritual use of fire, are you referring to it as a tool, for example, branding or cauterizing cut-off fingers uh, on the creation of fire as a sacred ritual itself?
3: Gosh, another good question. I hadn't actually thought about that linkage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll clip Clearly, that's a potential, right? In terms yeah. of the, the finger amputation being part of that that picture, um, I, I you know I think when we what we've ex, you know extracted from the the ethnographies is, is, is really more in the lines of sort of ritual performances and that sort of thing. That includes than sp- the starting of it, yeah, yeah, which is yeah, then yeah, a special yeah, point yeah, of. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Excellent. I'm going to shift to Andrew. Um, and for Andrew Shaw, is there any evidence of human introgression into Neanderthal or the Nithuan genomes, and if so, what are the potential evolutionary implications for their health?
4: <laughs> That's a good question. There is. I have surveyed literature. There are some papers that thought there was some introgression the other way and then some introgression of modern human DNA out of Africa, back into Africa, that happened to carry Neanderthal introgressed. So there was a recent paper that showed very trace evidence of some Neanderthal introgressed DNA back in African populations that was thought to be by human, tra- human transition return to Africa. I don't Brenham, I know uh, how strong that is better than I do. But there, is, there was some papers that showed that it looked like there was human introgression back into Neanderthals.
0: Well, the Y chromosome, right, the... Tuck Finch, I think I have your question. Yeah. So talk,
4: and you know, in terms of rel- for their health, I, we'd have to, We don't really have very good phenotypes, <laughs> other than a couple, a couple small skeletons. Mm. So I, I wouldn't know the yeah. the consequence for their health. Um...
0: Thank you very much. So th- with regard to the Y chromosome, we have. I think we only have one Y chromosome sequence from LC drone in Spain. But we have evidence for a modern human Y chromosome being in Neanderthal genome. So that would be... But we don't know whether it did anything for fertility or against fertility or, you know, any other thing. So next question for you, Andrew, is we have found a subset of patients with... Um, that express HLA, uh, HLA-CW7 at a higher percentage than expected in the mo- normal population. HLA-CW7 appears to have come into Homo sapiens from Neanderthals. We speculate that features of autism, for example, increased focus on, t- on topics, sorry, I'm not sure I can read that, may have been an advantage um, for Neanderthals, but not so much in our now highly socialized world. Additionally, HLA-7W7, CW7, results in the immune system being in a higher inflamed state. Again, possibly advantages for Neanderthals for both infection treatment and injury healing, but resulting in increased risk for CNS inflammation in the modern world. Please comment. Thanks. It's
4: <laughs> <That's> very interesting. <laughs>
0: Um, The same piece of DNA can do very different things to you, depending on what the environment is, I think, as you illustrated really nicely. Uh, One more for you. Based on your knowledge of the Neanderthal genome, are there DNA-based clues about the reasons for the disappearance of Neanderthals?
4: That's a good question. Um, There's... there was some debated evidence about how many deleterious mutations were accumulating on the Neanderthal background. So the population was thought to be shrinking when humans were interbreeding with them, and they were thought to be uh, inbreeding. So uh, there were some, some of the skeletons were consistent with, I think it was half-sibling marriages, and then some were really reduced genetic diversity where it was relatives had been mating over time. Um, and so that can accumulate deleterious mutations that can degenerate the health of the population. Um, and so, sorry, the question was uh, about the health evidence of the health status. So I think these would be the, the evidence of the health status that I've read, that there was these increased homozygosities consistent with kind of inbreeding, which would kind of mean the population was on its way down, the population was shrinking and may, may not have had that healthy genetic diversity.
0: And we know from conservation genetics that one of the really dire sides of endangerment is loss of alleles first and then loss of heterozygosity and and then environmental insult, and you can be gone. Excellent. I have uh, two questions for Mark Moffat. Is there any evidence of positive selection and evolution acting upon complex societal organization in different species of ants? No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
5: I forgot to say, great question.
0: Yeah, Next one, good one. Are there flaws to the structure or organization of ant societies?
5: The most famous example of a flaw is the equivalent of sort of a mental breakdown for humans at a society level in ants. And as I was talking to Pascal earlier, there are actually personality differences between ant colonies there are more aggressive colonies there are less aggressive colonies colonies that have have, uh, have uh, changed nests frequently get very good at it due to the individual skills of the ants increasing but also at a emergent level so there are all kinds of things that are happening at the colony level which i didn't talk about but for this dysfunction it happens with army ants and army ants are army ants because they go out in large swarms. There's no individual scouting happening. They go with shock and awe moving forward. And so nobody is ever more than a centimeter or two from the next ant. And if they go out in these swarms, they can go for 100 meters, and they get cut off, say water rises and a stream comes up, the ants have no way of getting back because there's no scouting, there's nothing going on, and they search around in their swarm, and find themselves and start circling, thinking they're eventually going to get, make it home. And they just circle and circle and circle until they all die. Or the water level drops and they get back.
2: Uh, are there any differences in disease incidence in high-altitude population, for example, cancer, compared to those at lower altitudes?
6: Yeah, so... The incidence of certain diseases does vary at altitude. Um, One of the first things that actually comes to mind is sleep apnea, which has a number of different consequences. So I didn't get a chance to talk about this, but if you can imagine living with chronic hypoxia or lower oxygen levels, and then inevitably at altitude, we get central sleep apnea. And so you have these episodes where your oxygen saturation is dropping even lower. Um, So that can have a lot of detrimental effects. Um, so that is something that we're quite interested in studying, uh, specifically in the Andean population. We're actually going there with James Yu, who's in the audience, and a Carta uh, member, in December. And so I think that can have a lot of downstream consequences that have a lot of important impacts in terms of metabolic function, cardiovascular health, et cetera. Um, in terms of cancer, I think you know there has been some studies to suggest that you know, maybe hypoxia is beneficial, maybe hypoxia is detrimental. Um, So I think the verdict is still out on some of those things, but this HIF pathway is essential in cancer, and so there could perhaps be a lot to be learned from high-altitude populations.
2: Um, I have now a number of questions for Pascal. (laughs) First one, uh, if scientists figure out the reason behind human females having permanent breasts, what significance would that information be to our understanding of sexual evolution?
0: Uh, very good question. Uh, the, the view on the evolution of human breasts ranges from having nothing to do with sexual selection to obviously having a lot to do with sexual selection. It's extremely hard, the, the, it's hard to reconcile the extremes. and. Um, I'm not aware of very hard data that show the existence of neutrality towards female breasts in, in the ethnographic record. You know, that, that Yes, there's a lot of societies that are much tolerant and don't make human breasts illegal. And in societies such an, as in you know, present-day Tanzania, anybody commenting on a woman breastfeeding with a hint that, oh, this is indecent, would be physically beat up. Where this has happened, I have witnessed this, you know, with with my wife breastfeeding at the San Diego Zoo, that people would go, disgusting, you
5: know, in in
0: this society. So I think societies that totally accept human breasts when they are part of nursing, uh, that doesn't disprove the fact that there is also sexual selection on breasts. Uh, And clearly breasts have signal value, but we don't understand what the signal value is. We have no idea how old this is. It's soft tissue. Uh, We also know they are influenced by menstrual cycles, but it's not perceptible by observation. So I I, I, I would like to add to to what I mentioned that I'm not trying to argue that there cannot possibly be subtle clues that are tracked by males or other females. But it's clearly not obvious, honest advertising of ovulation. Hopefully that somehow answers the question. Sorry.
2: Thank you. Another one. Um, it's a long one, so bear with me. <laughs> uh, you mentioned human harmon uh, lagers as are odd in having um, multimate groups, but no sexual swellings. But they are unusual in having highly variable social organization, uh, and plus uh, there are single male troops at many, if not most, sites. Co-parents has to do apparently. Sorry, apparently has to do with intruder, pressure, and population density. Also, rarely very young females do exhibit uh, uh, small swellings in the presence of an invading male. So there are perhaps an exception that proves the rule.
0: Thank you. It's a really important point that, that, um, again, I highly simplified when people talk about zoologists like to come up with neat rules about mating systems and Every one of these mating systems has a lot of exceptions. You know, um, gibbons have extra pair copulations, rarely, but they do. Uh, chimpanzees that usually have multi male mating can form consortships for one particular ovulation that ha- gives exclusive access to just one male. And gorillas can have more than one male actually running a group is usually brothers. Hmm. So there's a certain danger in us trying to bin these systems and forgetting that variability is the name of evolution. And, uh, and so this is a nice example that, and, and I think Karina's excellent talk showed us that something like interbirth interval that could be seen canonical as that's how what humans do. Well, you know, introduce uh, tuna from Mexico, the, the notchly those Mexi- it's on the national it's the national fruit of Mexico actually, it's the Opuntia uh, cactus fig, and and suddenly everything changes. Or take the animals into captivity and suddenly they shorten their interbirth intervals. So if you have more diversity in social systems imposed by ecology or disruption or human interference. Now suddenly you have intruding males and then you might observe some pretty interesting things that don't fit. So it's a good reminder that there is only variation. Yeah. Um,
2: Another question for Pascal. Uh, Since ovulation is is an... unsigned, unsigned, unsignaled in humans and many non-human primates, is it possible that concealed ovulation is the normal phenotype while conspicuous ovulation has evolved uniquely in chimpanzees and and bonobos?
0: I'm very happy to say that I got this question before my talk. So, yes, congratulations. I wholeheartedly
3: agree. (laughs)
2: Um, I have one more question for Pascal. Uh, why may species with semi-annual period have higher fecundability than humans with monthly periods?
0: So the minute you, you talk about semi-annual uh, uh, ovulation, you're outside of primates. And all the apes have, have spontaneous cyclical ovulations. One big exception are the orangutans, where for ecological reasons, the females seem to be in triathlon training period. There's just not enough fat in the body to ovulate. Um, and, and so, I think it, th- this is a comparative, you know, we don't know the true fecundability of great apes from those that have been kept in captivity. It looks like if you let them be together, they will get pregnant. Um, so it's a, I don't think it's a question I, I can answer. Uh, it's a much bigger question, why are there seasonal breeders? Many mammals actually you know, stop spermatogenesis and ovulation for much of the year, and then everything gets cranked up just for one breeding season. And those are species where you have a true rut and a heat and an estrus. But that's not what you
2: see in apes. Thank you. Um, my next questions: two questions are for, well, three questions are for Corina. Um, does the energetic... Does the energetic requirements of uh, offspring differ with the sex of the offspring?
7: Yes. Somebody read that diagram really closely. Yes. So at least in humans, it's been found that male offspring, so boys, are much more costly for females. Uh, Females, women, who are pregnant with boys tend to eat more but not gain more weight than women that are pregnant with girls. Um, It tends to take them longer to stop having postpartum amenorrhea, so it does seem that male infants are more costly. I don't know if there's enough data in other primate species for that, um, but we do know from some lactational data that Katie Hind published, that milk composition in macaques varies depending on whether the offspring is a male or a female, uh, with males having or receiving breast milk that's um, less but more dense calorically, so they receive more energy from the mother earlier, and females receiving more breast milk that's more diluted, so receiving less energy. So comparably similar energy, but females over more time and males um, earlier on, which might explain why they grow faster than females do.
2: It's another question for you. It seems like the IBS uh, touched, the, oh, the richness, touched the richness of the environmental and... How many individuals it could it can support it avoids overpopulation is is uh, is this a lucky coincidence or should we expect to see such a population over, um, <laughs> uh, suggest, yes, such a population over over in oh my god. <laughs> okay, can, can you? you
7: back. Back. Uh,
0: it, it seems like the like interbreeding like, will tracks how much food there's in the environment, mm-hmm. and as a result, like prevents or, or like governs population size and population. What we expect something like that to like evolve for us is a lucky coincidence.
7: I think you're totally right that it helps population stay at the carrying capacity for their environment, and in an ideal world, that would be great. Um, but then you get things like humans and environments changing much faster than animals can adapt to. So, for example, orangutans—we were just talking about this—with their extremely long interbirth intervals, we don't know how recent that is. It might be a more recent response to very poor environments. Um, it might be an evolved response to predictably poor environments, but also low levels of adult mortality, and that is changing with humans. So, the adult mortality is increasing much faster than they can, you know, produce babies. Uh, to respond to, and so they're going extinct um, pretty quickly. With humans, yeah, ideally, but then here we go overpopulating the globe. So, yeah, that's great for our species, not so much for everybody else. So,
2: One last question for you. Um, is there a significant difference in IBEI in multi-female mountain gorilla groups? If so, could it be possible evidence for paternal cooperative care in gorillas?
7: I am not sure about that. So, does that mean in multi-male? So, those gorilla groups that Pascal was just mentioning that have more than one male was that the question, or offspring, multi-male, multi-female offspring?
2: Multi-multi-male mountain gorilla groups. Uh, significant difference in IBI in multi-male mountain gorilla groups. If so, could it be possible evidence for paternal cooperative care?
7: Oh, gorilla. so maybe the question is, could they be faster in, mm-hmm. yes, when there's yeah. multiple. I don't know if anybody has looked at that. That is a really interesting question. I mean, unfortunately with the apes, um, there's not a lot of babies. <laughs> they are slow breeders, and so it's hard to get large enough sample size to ask those kind of questions. But it would be really interesting to look at that. Yeah. Excellent question.
0: I have the last question for Ava. Um, I, I was really impressed with you pointing out potential ladders towards language, and I was glad you mentioned this recent paper on, you know, more complexity in chimpanzee sound than anybody had expected. But having had the privilege of, you know, going to Tanzania re- regularly and hang out for hours with chimpanzees, I, I wonder how you feel about this observation. If, if these animals that we falsely suspect of not having any level of language. If they really have these levels of language, why is it that when we sit with chimpanzees who are at their most social, well-fed, they don't have to eat, they just hang out, that's precisely when they don't make a sound for hours, you know, and it's when we are chatterboxes, especially me. Uh, so th- do linguists ever think about that? Because that seems completely missing from discussions. Like, oh, this, this monkey in the Thai forest combines two sounds that now means let's move. As they say, eagle, leopard, and Klaus Zuberbühler, who is amazing, you know, controlled. He proved they have a simple syntax with two units. But that's it. That's the best. That's, sorry, folks. That's as good as it gets so far, right? So maybe we need to sit with highly socializing non-human animals better, including underwater for the cetaceans, and and catch them in the act of gossiping and telling stories?
8: I don't know very much about gossip in non-human animals. Um, I mean, a flippant answer would be maybe there's just not that much to say, right? (laughs) (laughs) But honestly, my, my, my personal hunch is that as a literature, maybe we've gone down, we've barked up the wrong tree, right? Like, maybe it's not about combinatoriality. I suspect it's much more about this feature of displacement. That we, for some reason, have figured out what symbols are for, right? That we can use symbols and refer to things that are not right here, right there. And I think this will go a much longer way to explain what is different between human language and and animal communication systems. But... I, I don't know what's going, to, what's going on with the gossip, but I think that I hope, what, what I'm trying to say is that it is, it's, we, want, we always want the easy answer, right? Like we always want to say, like, this is exactly what is different in other animals from humans, but I, I think we are not much further than we were 20 years ago <laughs> in answering this question because I think we've
7: asked the wrong question.
0: Thank you very much. Add something to that. Yeah,
7: please. And just borrowing from Robin Dunbar, right, yep. and the evolution of language as gossip. I mean, that's coming from a place where you're seeing language as a social interaction, which is a very human look at language. So maybe those chimpanzees are not chatting because they're grooming. That's not how they socialize. They groom each other. Yep. Um, and I think the geladas, you didn't get to see this today, but those um, mon- monkeys living at high altitudes don't have a lot of time for grooming because they're plucking grass all the time and feeding. And so they are the chattiest of monkeys. They have the widest range of sounds. They're talking all the time. If you find the video clip on YouTube, watch it. They're hilarious. They're just like chatting, 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 chatting all the time because that's how they maintain those social relationships. So maybe chimpanzees just don't have that. And the argument has always been that they just chat
8: um, to say like I'm here, right? Like make miss me or I'm something. <laughs> you know, something like that. But I don't. I, I no. agree with you no. that you know if we have the wrong criteria. This is what I'm trying to say.
0: No, well, thanks very much for pointing out that great, great point. So I think I hand over for you.
8: This
5: is just to close. And to say thank you, thank you to our audience, thank you to our speakers, Uh, maybe not surprising, as expected, very high quality talks, Um, the diversity with regard to scientific disciplines which we come to expect in in the Anthropogeny uh, and and Carta Symposia. Um, Great questions too, so um, just wanna say thanks. Um, So once again, thank you to our wonderful speakers. Let's give them all a hand.